Amen. Let us turn to our confessional reading this evening, Lord's Day 17, question and answer 45. As we continue to work uh, through in the catechism's uh, summary, the work of Christ, the summary of the work of Christ in the Apostles' Creed, line by line, broken down. Here we have the question and answer focused on the resurrection of Christ. As our text will be Ephesians 2, we'll say something about the ascension and the rule of Christ as well, but we're focused especially on Christ's resurrection. And let us uh, say together the answer. I'll read question 45. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. It's the confession we hold in common. Let's turn to the very word of God, Ephesians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, page 1242, the Bibles under the seats. And we'll read uh, verses 1 to 10. We're going to be looking especially at verses 4 to 10. We begin our reading at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Let us hear the very word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For you are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord endures forever. 
and dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. There was uh, once uh, an old Christian magazine, I, I think this, this quote was from the early 1900s, and it was a monthly magazine and it had a little section uh, titled uh, Words About Sin. And it had a, it had a series of, of pairs and it read partially like this. Words about sin. Man calls it an accident. God calls it an abomination. Man calls it a blunder. God calls it a blindness. Man calls it a mistake. God calls it madness. Man calls it an error. And God calls it an enmity. These are some words used to describe what sin is. And it's the contrast between the vocabulary of the Bible to describe sin and the regular vocabulary of man to describe sin. But brothers and sisters, we must go further than this. Because we must not only have a, a proper understanding and a, and a proper biblical vocabulary of what sin is, we also need to have a biblical description of where sin leaves us. There is what sin is and there is what sin leaves us in. Where does sin leave us? What is the biblical word to describe that? Well, that word is death. Sin leaves us in death. Sin leaves us dead. The language of Paul in the letter to the Romans is that the wages of sin is death. The language of the Apostle Paul here, uh, first seen in verse 1 and then repeated in verse 5, is this, that we are dead in our trespasses. So these are, this is part of the biblical vocabulary about sin. Not only telling us what sin is, but also telling us where sin leaves us, who we are. For we are all, by nature, children of wrath. That is how we are born, following our first parent, Adam, who fell into sin so long ago. And so, if we are dead, what do we need? If we are dead, then we need life. And praise be to God that death and deadness is not the last word. It is not the end of the message because God is the living God. And His Son is the living One who has conquered the very grave itself. And so that's our theme tonight. Christ, the living one, gives the gift of life. We're going to first look at shared life, and then eternal life in verses 6 to 7, and then new life in verses 8 to 10. So we begin with shared life. Sins are paid for. Uh, and this is both the... You know our first point. It's verses four and five in the text, and it's also the it's also the first point uh, of of the three benefits listed in question answer 45. Uh, there it is. First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death. 
so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Our focus uh, two weeks ago, for those who are here, is the reality that when Christ was on the cross, he suffered not only physical death, but he also suffered the penalty of sin upon himself. He also suffered spiritual death while on the cross. This means that when the visible victory of Jesus Christ is seen, when the cross is followed by the open and empty tomb, the open and empty tomb is a declaration not only of victory in physical life, Christ bodily rose from the grave, and that will have implications for our bodily life and the promises of the future. We're going to get to that in the second point. It means that the open and empty tomb also has a declaration of victory in relation to spiritual things, in relation to the penalty of sin. Or let's put it this way, brothers and sisters. When we think about our sin, and when we are convicted of our sin, which every one of us has, we are assured of the forgiveness of sins And one of the places we see that assurance, one of the places we see that sure victory is in that open and empty tomb. Because the cross was not just about physical death and physical resurrection. The cross was the payment for our sins. So the open tomb which which follows the cross is the visible declaration. It's the visible proclamation Sins are paid for. Christ won the victory. They are done. You trust in Christ. Your sins, whatever they are, are forgiven. This is the reality in Christ. It's the plan of God. It's the plan of God the Father. We have... We have some triune language in our text. But God, in verse 4, refers especially to God the Father. It is all the plan of God. The plan of salvation is the Trinity in unity. Uh, We have the plan of God the Father going into action. And the plan of God the Father was never to leave us in our deadness, to leave us in that penalty of death which sin covers over us that slavery to death which we have by nature. No, the plan of God was always to give life because God is rich in mercy. Because God is wonderful in His grace. A reformed understanding of salvation, brothers and sisters, then helps us to have proper view of ourselves and a proper view of God. Think about the objections against God. Objections against God which often come back to to a few often repeated things, including what? The fact that how, how can God judge sinners? Well, you take the language of sinners out of it. 
right? Because sin is not really in the vocabulary of mankind. And certainly the deadness that sin leaves us in is not really part of the vocabulary of mankind. And so you just say what? You say, well, how can God judge people? How, how, how can God condemn anyone to hell? How could that be? How could a good God do that? And, and so on and so forth. Well, who, who are we? What is sin? Where does sin leave us? And now we have, we have a right view of ourselves when we use the language of God's holy and infallible word. And we speak about sin for what it is. And we speak about sin for where it leaves us. We, we are dead in sin. We, we have no hope of life apart from God. We are justly condemned if God does not step in. But God does step in. Because He is rich in mercy, He does not leave us in death. He gives His own Son to die for us. But it's not a death which stays dead. It's the death which is followed by the empty tomb. And it is the death which is followed by victory because Christ really paid for sin. And so now now we stand back. When we use the language of of Scripture, which is the true Word revealed to us. Now we begin to see who we really are. We begin to see who God really is. And we say, how, how, can, how can we ever make an objection against God? We are dead and we deserve death. God is rich in mercy. He saves. He saves sinners. He saved me. He saved you. If only you trust in Him. And so we sing the song of God-centered praise and God-centered salvation. This is part of the very song of eternity. Revelation chapter 7 speaks of one of the songs of heaven with these words. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. God is rich in mercy. He saves sinners and He brings many to Himself. From every tribe and uh, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So when we have a right view of self, and when we have a right view of God, we, we rejoice in who God is, and what God has done for us. It is wrong view of self Wrong view of God, which leads to all of those unholy objections which come against the name of God. But let us rejoice in His rich mercy. Let us know it for ourselves, taken from deadness to life. Well, let's speak now about eternal life. Our second, our second point, verses six and seven. Because by grace you have been saved. And that salvation leads to, uh, to eternal and immeasurable uh, riches and gifts. Our first point was, was looking 
closely at that first benefit of, of the catechism. Now we're looking a little bit at the, at the third. Third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. Okay, but unlike our other two points, this one's, this one's not directly tied to how the catechism is summarizing it. Because what is Paul doing here in Ephesians? He's really moving beyond the resurrection. And look at the language that he uses. He uses language of ascension and raised us up with him. But notice that just as, just as the resurrection of Christ has real benefits for you and for me, so the ascension of Christ also has real benefits for you and for me. We are united to Christ in his ascension. When God goes to the very, when God the Son goes to the very presence of God the Father, there is a real promise for you and for me, for every true believer, about coming into the very presence of God. The ascension of Christ is a promise following the resurrection. It's, it's part of that glorification of our Savior which all comes after the cross. After the cross, you have, you have the, the resurrection, the ascension, and the session, the, the sitting in power, and all of this all of this is not just Christ Himself, but as we are united to Christ, it means something for us and raised us up with Him. And, and we're talking now in the last half of chapter 6, in, in the last half of verse 6, now we're talking about the session. We're talking about the sitting in power of Christ. But it's not only for Christ, even this is also for us and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, as we seek to understand this and as we give some specific applications of this, let's, let's turn to Daniel chapter 7. Let's turn back with me to Daniel chapter 7. We are, we are sitting with Christ in ruling authority because we're united to Him by faith. All true believers have real authority. How can we even think in these terms? What, is, what does this mean? How does this, how does this apply? How far does this go? Daniel chapter 7. We're going to read verse 18. Just a couple words about verses 15 and 16 and 17 leading up to that. Daniel's anxious, alarmed. The visions are overwhelming him. The four beasts described earlier in the chapter are the four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Four great kingdoms on this earth. But, Daniel 7, verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. The saints shall possess. The saints shall rule. Revelation chapter 22 speaks of the same reality. Yes, the uh, the throne of God and of the Lamb is 
is is separate from the servant worshippers, but the servant worshippers of God and the Lamb upon the throne are also described as reigning forever and ever. It's Revelation 22, verses 3 to 5. So, so we think about the benefits of true believers in Christ. We can talk about the promised bodily resurrection, and that's that's not that's not the that's not the thing that, that Paul is focused on here in Ephesians two. That's the point focused on in the Catechism. That's the point focused on in chapters like First Corinthians chapter fifteen. And what a great promise that is. We're no longer going to be sown in dishonor and weakness. We're going to be given the body of, of, of honor and power. And we're going to share having a resurrection body like Christ. What a great and beautiful promise that is. But here in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, the Apostle is taking us beyond that. He's saying, don't, don't just think about the fact that you will share in resurrection promise. You will also share in the promise of presence ascended into the presence of God, you will also share in the promise of power, ruling power, seated with Him. And so now, let's apply that in just a couple of ways. We could apply it in more. Let's apply this in a couple of ways. Sometimes, God calls us to Himself but our earthly calling feels insignificant. We don't see how we're being used for Christ. We're just one of billions of people on this earth. How, how, is, there, how is there value to what I am doing? Well, brothers and sisters, other texts speak about the value that we have all through this life and, and giving glory to God in all situations. We even It's a little bit what we talked about this morning. But, but I'll also point your eyes forward to, to the future. I'm going to tell you that believing in Christ, every single true believer will have eternal authority. You'll have a th- eternal rule. You will always be part of the royal house. There is no insignificant place in God's kingdom when he brings his people to himself. And then, thinking of that in one more way, those four kings, the four kings of the earth, Daniel 7, verse 17, and you feel insignificant and and the powers of the world feel so significant. And then the, the news, and we can get news from all around the world nowadays, and it's all full of bad news often because that, uh, that draws the attention first. And we say, what, what can we do? How, how can we stand against the kings of this earth? Daniel 7, verse 18. The saints will rule. The kingdoms of this earth will not last. Brothers and sisters, be be comforted and see that in Christ you 
You have no reason to fear, though the very kingdoms of this earth stand against you. And that in Christ you will be given authority. You will be ruling forever and ever. The end of question and answer 45, together with Ephesians 2, 6, and 7, that, that third benefit and these promises, what they share is this. They're, they're all future promises. But they are sure promises. So that in the coming ages, verse 7, He might show us the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It is in Christ Jesus that we have gifts unlike any gift that can ever be given on this earth. We have gifts of, of eternal and immeasurable riches and, uh, and royal, royal authority, royal honor. And brothers and sisters, now, uh, now we come back to, to the present. We come to new life, sins resisted now. And uh, this, uh, the, the catechism follows the chronological order. So in Ephesians 2, uh, verses 8 to 10, are a clarification, a, a further description of, of what came before. Uh, but in, in Lord's Day 17, we have it all in chronological order. So, so now this comes back, and this relates directly to the second benefit uh, summarized in question and answer 45. By His power we too are already raised to a new life. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 doesn't use the word new, but it uses the word created. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. And to be created is to be made new. We are made new for good works. We were not saved by good works. Our salvation was not a result of good works, lest anyone should boast. Uh, verse 9, and, and really that's said in, in, in a different way in, in verse 8. It's, it's not what you have done. It's grace. It's God's own doing. It's not your doing. It's not your works. But having been saved, now you are His workmanship, and now you will be created. You will be made new. And you will begin to do good works. This, uh, this is then contrasted with uh, the brief description of, of what the old life of sin looks like in verses 2 and 3. The passions of the flesh. No, this is, this is to be put away. We are now created as a new workmanship, created for good works. How new should this uh, new created life be? I, I may have used this illustration before. I, I don't know if I did, but I'm going to use it again, even if I used it once. You know, how, how new should new be? How far away from the old should we seek to get? Now, there was uh, back, when, back when, a, when a wealthy person could hire a driver, there was once a wealthy woman who, who wanted to hire uh, someone to drive her. She wanted to hire a man to drive her. And she decided to use this question. She asked uh, each driver who applied, if you're driving around a sharp corner with a cliff on one side, how close to the edge should you get? 
And you know, two applicants, I think this is a parable. I don't think it really happened. But in this, we'll say it's a parable. Two of the applicants, they, they decide that this should be an opportunity to, to brag about how great their driving skills are, right? So one says, oh, well, I can, the first man says, well, I can get, I can get within 18 inches of the cliff. and We have no trouble. And then the second man says, oh, driving close to a cliff? I could be, I could be right up to within, a, to within a hair's breadth of the cliff and you would have nothing to worry about. Right? And then the third man comes and he says, you know, ma'am, if you hire me to be your driver and I'm coming around a sharp corner with a cliff, I am going to stay as far away from that cliff as I can. And then in the parable, who, who does the woman hire? She hires the third man. Well, brothers and sisters, how far should we try to be from our old life? In the Old Testament, one of the words for repentance is a word that literally means turn, turn around, do a 180, go the other direction, be as far away from the old as possible. That's what true repentance is. To be God's workmanship is not to push the limits, to see how far to the cliff of the desires of sinful passion we can get. No, it's to say, I'm going to turn around. I'm going to go the other direction. I'm going to seek to be as far away as possible. We are a new creation, a new workmanship. It's not what saved us, but it is what we are saved for. And as those saved, we, we will have this newness. We are already raised to a new life. That's, that's spiritual language. It's not saying that we already have the new body. That's not true. Our bodies are still sown in weakness and dishonor. And our physical bodies will still face death. That's a future promise. That's a promise that comes at the second coming. It's detailed at length in 1 Corinthians 15. But our new life now, which is not the same as the best life now, which we're never called to seek, our new life now is new righteousness, new workmanship, new serving and good works for Christ. And so and this is this is the biblical understanding of the place of good works in our life. It's not how we're saved, but it's what we're saved for. The 16th century reformer Martin Luther said it this way: It is not against works that we contend, but against trust in works. 17th century Puritan Thomas Manton said it this way: When the Lord has worked on us, He then works by us. Or others have simply paraphrased language from Ephesians 2 verses 9 and 10 and said, we are not saved by good works. It is not a result of good works by which we are saved. We are not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. And so, brothers and sisters, this here is, is, is the plain revelation of the Word of God which stands against too many far too common errors. Errors of saying that it doesn't matter what the believer does or those too common errors where you say salvation is, is somehow a mixing of God's grace and our works together. 
grace plus works in one way or another. No, Ephesians 2, 9 and 10 very simply and plainly puts these things in the proper order and gives us the proper understanding. And so, uh, people of God, we have a right view of ourselves. We are dead in sin. We cannot save ourselves. We only begin to work after God has worked in us, worked in us. But God is great in mercy. God is worthy of praise. God has saved us for Himself has made us His workmanship and will bring us into the very heavens as His rulers. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, our Lord, Lord of lords and King of kings, may we 